This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Come Walk With Me to Glory, What Being a Christian Means to Me, and the author is D.W. Matlock, and Diane joins us now on iUniverse. Hello, Diane. Well, hello there. How are you? Great to have you with us. Uh, the emphasis of this book, as you write, is on the magnificence of God and our desire to obtain as much of his holiness in our hearts as we can. So life is filled with many, many challenges, and we're never alone, and God has all the answers, doesn't he? Yes, he truly does. Yes, he does. And um, I'm a good example of that. <laughs> Uh, I've had more than one marriage in my life. I've lived a worldly life in the past. Uh didn't have much achievement or much peace of mind. And after marrying Mr. Wells, who was a, just a totally committed Christian, uh, it totally uh, was the influence that guided me toward changing my life or allowing God to change my life. And the main reason was because Mr. Wells was such a cheerful, happy Christian. He wasn't the long face kind of knows and don'ts sort of person. It was yeses and do's and take your faith and go with it with him. And he just was a remarkable man. And it very much encouraged me not to covet what he had, <laughs> but almost you could say that I definitely wanted what he had. And uh, he just sort of led me along the way with that. And we owned um, two large Christian bookstores and and we just had a ball, and people were happy that came in our store, and it was just an, another outlook on Christianity. The world doesn't seem to realize very much today that Christianity truly is a marvelous thing. Uh, it's not the way the world portrays it. Would you look at this book kind of like a biography? Uh, is there a, there's a bit of autobiography in it, but mainly it's, um, it's a book about learning to walk with God and learning to accept the things that we can't change uh, and still loving Him and still trusting Him. And because of my, praise God, simple attitude toward Him, uh, in receiving everything he says and does as a truth and a reality, he has had, he has accomplished so many miracles in my life. It's like an adventure. It's it's just an adventure. It's a wonderful way to live. 
Um, I was going to read one little thing to you uh, on page nine Please. in the book. Okay. It says, and this is just my attitude about it and how I love God. It says, walking with God is the pinnacle of all that is good and worth striving for on earth. And it is a blessed and lovely way to live. Choose to allow trust in him to bring order to any chaos or need that may be in your life. It is a decision that you personally make in your heart, and it will not be based on religious ritual. You will never regret it. My suggestion is to encompass extreme Christianity. Being mediocre in anything is to withhold excellence. So seeking the excellence of God is an exciting quest. Praise God. And it has why do you been think, why, why do you think earlier on, before you were, before you became converted, why, why, what was the problem? Why didn't you recognize God for who he is back then? Okay, now that, that is not too difficult a question. Um, I believe that I was brought up in an environment, as many, many Americans are, where uh, we're handed a lot of tradition. And so uh, having gone to the altar and professed Jesus, I did believe intellectually that he existed, but I had never heard of being born again. It just wasn't mentioned very often in, in church that I went to. So uh, after marrying Mr. Wells, um, who was such a strong Christian, I started and that being born again, it, it truly is being reborn in your spirit. And before uh, the life I had lived, um, there were rules and uh, regulations about our Christian walk. But to tell you the truth, uh, I was on the the board at the church in uh, um, on base in England that I lived at for a long time with my first husband. And on um, Sundays, we would all have church. And on Saturday nights, we would all go to the club and party. And almost everybody from church would be there. And uh, that was religion, maybe, to go to church and attend and and feel that you were being dutiful, but it was not receiving the life-changing event of being born again in your spirit to relate with God, to think of him as really with you all the time, to love him as a friend and a father, and to develop a real relationship with him. I just had never been taught that that sort of thing even existed. So um, that's basically it. Until I was 42 years old, I thought I was saved, but that included doing it pretty much anything I wanted, not too far out of line. It wasn't my nature, but to do uh, sinful things. Um, I just thought, well, all that grace of God, it's okay if I do these things. And that's mm-hmm. not the way to get to heaven. <laughs> when you know, we just need to have a, a change in our heart that makes us want to be like God, to want to be um, good examples of uh, and good representatives of who and what he really is, which is a loving, magnificent, wonderful being 
How was the Christian bookstore so influential in your life? Well, uh, for one thing, at that early point, when I married Mr. Wells, he already had the Christian bookstore ministry. So when I went into it originally, I was still living under the false impressions that I had about having um, confessed to be a believer, but never having it in my heart. It was only an intellectual thing. And as you, I'm sure, know, the Bible says even the demons believe and tremble. So just believing with your mind is not is not enough. You need to go beyond that to a, a spiritual loving relationship with God. So um, being in the Christian bookstore, there was just a constant um, good praise music uh, being played, people talking about spiritual things. Um, our store was right down the hill from uh, Jerry Falwell's uh, Liberty University. So we had a lot of young people coming in all the time, talking about the Word and discussing things. And it just got to be the most wonderful environment a person could ever live in. It's like a little slice of heaven or paradise to be in such a godly environment all the time. And I guess we're like osmosis. I started just absorbing it and loving it and... Uh, after several years of our being in the Christian bookstore business, I felt that I had had um, a lot of challenges and that I had responded often in the way that I thought God wanted me to and that I had definitely grown as a person and, and as a Christian woman. Things that had been really exciting to me before um, uh, going to Switzerland, going deep sea fishing in Acapulco, doing worldly things, having beautiful clothes, just uh, being a, a worldly person. Nothing from that life appealed to me anymore as compared to how a life for God appealed to me. Because to me, and people should still be seeing signs and wonders as in the early church, because our our nation and our attitudes have changed, but God hasn't changed. He's still the same yesterday, today, and forever, and changes not. So uh, to, to me, and not to be critical of anyone, because I was walking the, the same route myself, if we start realizing how real and how powerful God is, we will see great help come from heaven when we are in distress or have needs. And uh, I just, I, I, it's sad to see people missing out on that because of a misconception about Christianity, wanting to hang on to their guns or whatever the saying is we hear on TV so often. <laughs> I, I mean, their Bibles and their guns, but it's not like that. If you're really in line with and walking with God. It's a it's a freedom. Um, it's not a fear. And it's a place of um, confidence and trust. It just changes your whole attitude in life when you can develop a true relationship with a living God, not an imaginary friend. What is your greatest concern about Christianity today? My goodness, my greatest concern is that um, 
<laughs> everybody doing what they please is uh, just overriding Christian moral behavior completely. And the further we get from the ways of morality and uh, developing character that is sound and honest and good, I mean, TV is the worst example, I guess. That I mean, it's a good example of the worst kind of things that everybody is so interested in uh, that are opposed to Christian um, subjects. Money, sex, Dracula, all sorts of things like that are that's mm. just what we have put in front of us all the time on the on the T V screen and if you talk about Christianity people think you're weird. <laughs> but they don't understand, you know, we we are are feeling that they're missing things because they're not having um the magnificence and holiness of God helping them in in their lives they're they're struggling on their own when they're living that far away from righteousness so with god there's always hope no matter what the challenge no matter what the situation that is absolutely true and uh, further on in my book i tell about having lost a son to aids having lost a husband to alzheimer's Move into uh, when when we left the bookstore ministry, we had purchased some land on the Tennessee River, and that uh, <laughs> we had uh, sort of imagined it to be a, a not not such an unusual thing to move uh, to the river in Tennessee, but we really had no idea that we were moving into a wilderness that was thousands of acres that surrounded us with very few houses. And so it was. It sort of turned into the, like being a pioneer in a modern times. <laughs> and we um, had a road built that went in from the highway. It went one mile into the woods to the bank of the river where we built our house. We also didn't know that it, there were tons of uh, rattlesnakes and uh, um, bo- uh, bobcats and all sorts of things that city people aren't used to, but uh, it, it was just a real challenge to adjust to such a different kind of life, and uh, and also in in the community to not be received very well, which surprised us because we both had come from backgrounds of country folk and felt that they would be more welcoming, but instead they sort of looked at us as uh, people, uh, outsiders, who had come in, and because we were um, uh, firm in our beliefs about behavior, some people thought that we were a little over the edge with, they call it religion, we thought this spirituality so uh, it was there were some difficult times and um, we thought everywhere in the world you could get water if you wanted it and there was no drinking water available down in that area they had limestone rock everywhere so um, we started through a process that ended up being a three-year lawsuit and getting the uh, the local closest town to us to uh, run water lines to our property 
Uh, they just thought we were people who had come out there to develop and sell land and get rich off their uh, their what they were used to as being their country. But really, that had not been our our thought at all. Uh, it was because Mr. Wells was beginning to show signs of Alzheimer's, so we didn't realize what it was. We thought it was just stress. But uh, we we moved there just intending to have a new home and a place of mm-hmm. peace and quiet. But <laughs> everything but that sort of happened, and that's okay <laughs> because God took us on the... A tremendous adventure of learning and growing in Him. You say, my heart yearns to encourage and convince folks that God really is a real being. And, of course, uh, it's very evident in your book, Come Walk With Me to Glory. And we've been listening to Diane Wells uh, Metlock. Diane, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's on all of uh, some anybody's favorite uh, websites that sell uh, books and can be ordered through any local Christian bookstore or um, not just Christian bookstore, through any bookstores. Um, and that's the best way to do it, I guess, is g- Google or right. um, yeah, Amazon. Right. Well, very good. Well, thank you so much for being with us, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you. I don't know that I said any of the things I had intended to say, (laughs) 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 but I hope that people will understand and and be interested in the fact that, that God has changed my life so drastically and that it has been a wonderful change, not a sad and and pitiful one. It's, It's been miraculous. Thanks again, Diane. Well, thank you, Steve. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana, through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage, connectwithjulianainmedia.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. 
Make the connection. Tune into Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The title of the book is The Weekend Warriors, and our author is James W. Burke, Jr. Welcome, Jim, to the program. Good to hear from you, Jay. I'm uh, curious about your book. I know what the content is. It's a Weekend Warriors refers to the military that doesn't perform full-time. Is that the right premise for your book? Correct. I wrote the book during the Cold War during the 80s, and the term the active army used to refer to the National Guard and Army Reservists was Weekend Warriors. That's the only we only did military once a month, uh, one week in a month, and two weeks a year for the annual training. You've managed to pen uh, 284 pages, and uh, this is a fictional novel, but it incorporates some of your background as as a military, uh, a, a gentleman that was in the military. Yes, um, the the story is fictional. The Units, the people in there are fictional, but it's based on um, my service, both active duty and reserve. That spent a lot of time dealing with the potential of war in Europe, dealing with the potential of war in Germany. And I did spend about 10 years in Germany while I was both in active duty and in the reserves. What motivated you to put this together? Why did you feel it was uh, interesting and an idea to put together the, the story of the Weekend Warriors? When I wrote the book, there had been no major mobilization of the reserves since the end of the Korean War. And the stories that were written about the war in Europe, about the Cold War, concentrated primarily uh, on the active duty people, the people who were in Germany when the action began. And I was looking at it from the point of these, the reservists, uh, as I was at the time, being called up straight from the uh, civilian life and sent over seas and winding up in, in combat, uh, how, would it, how would it affect the reservists themselves and how would it affect their families? And I wanted to address that. I thought it was a good story to tell. Your main character, what is their names? The main, the main character is uh, Michael Fitzmaurice. It starts in the beginning of the story. He's a major and he's the operations officer for a support group which is a collection of non-combat units that provide logistic support to the fighting forces. And a, sec- a secondary character is his wife, Elizabeth, who is a doctor at Boston, and those are pretty much the main characters. You also are a military historian to some degree. That's your focus in life. How did you become interested in military history? Um, I'm an Army brat. And when I was in high school, my father was assigned to Germany. He and I would travel on weekends to various uh, old battlefields. And he was a World War II vet, as were the fathers of most of my friends. And uh, they began telling war stories. Uh, they'd talk about you know, their time in the Battle of the Bulge. And I'd drive the Bastogne and realized that, hey, this is where 
you know, my friend Gary's father fought in World War II, so it became very vivid to me, and I became interested in, well, what happened here and how did it affect people, uh, and then it just grew from, my interest just grew from there, and uh, I did a lot of reading about it, and it's become, I don't want to say an advocate, I don't want to say a vocation, but a very serious interest. You've uh, placed this story in the Cold War era of, uh, of our history, and I'm curious why there and not contemporary times. Um, well, first of all, the story really doesn't lend itself to contemporary times. Uh, I tried rewriting it, and it just didn't seem to fit. But more importantly, I think that a lot of people have forgotten what the Cold War was what the Cold War was about, what the Cold War was like. I mean, I grew up during it. As I said, I'm a military brat, and I remember my father reacting to the Cuban Missile Crisis and uh, doing the duck and cover under your desk. When we got to Germany in 1962, the first thing we had to do was make family. My mother, sister, and I had to travel the route uh, that we would have used if the Russians had invaded are what they call the non-combatant evacuation route from our town in Germany to Verdun, France, and then to the harbor at Brest, so we could take a ship, we could be evacuated by ship back to the States. Then when I was stationed in Germany, um, we would spend time patrolling along the border, and the difference between life in the West and life in the East uh, was tremendous. It was very evident. And I think that's a story that, that should be told that people should remember about. Did any of the characters in your book, did they, are they a, a composite of real life characters or are they totally fictitious? They're pretty much, they're totally fictitious. Some traits I used, obviously I served with people who were Vietnam vets, but in the story itself, they're all totally fictitious. They're not based on anyone any real person, and not composites from any real person. Tell us about the women in this story that you have uh, created. Uh, what is their position in, in, in the novel? Uh, women began to take an active role back in the 70s and uh, certainly are, are becoming more and more prevalent even in being considered for, for uh, military uh, fighting action. W- what position do they carry in your novel? Um, they carry a fairly important position, and uh, when I wrote the book, there was a lot of discussion and, quite honestly, a certain degree of hostility toward women in the military, the feeling that they couldn't carry their weight, particularly in, in combat. And I believe then, and I, I believe now, that the women soldiers are just as capable of performing as their, as their male counterparts. And that's what I tried to show with the story is that when these you know, properly led, properly trained soldiers, it didn't matter whether you were male or female, you answered to the circumstances that came up. And I think that was part of, I think that was one of the major themes of the novel is that when you take a person and put them in situations that require them to perform in extraordinary ways, they can rise to those circumstances. Is your, that's what I believe. That's what I believe the women in the novel did, 
and I think it's been shown in reality since 2000 and 2001 that the women can perform in combat very well. Is your book character-based, or is it action-driven, or is it a combination of both? I think it's a combination of both. I tried to portray the characters as they would react to the situations that came up. I mean, the action is pretty much driven, I think, factually. You know, in, in a war, certain things happen. You can pretty much predict that. You can predict that events will take place. There will be attacks. There will be defenses. There will be battles. But then I tried to, I tried to put the characters in situations where they would react to those, drop them in a battle. How are they going to react? Are they going to fight or flee? And depending on the character, you had a reaction. So I want to say it's both character-driven and action-driven. Your book has tension between the United States and the Soviet Union. And with current uh, news that's happening, what is your personal opinion about what might transpire in the future? I think that the United States is in a position where they really can't respond very well. I think that we're in a position where, and, and this was sort of sort of the overstory to the book, is that we have different perceptions than the other side, and we're we, we're thinking that the other side is is going to perform the same way and act. We're going to think the same way we do. Certainly, nothing that we can anticipate as far as their reaction to us and our reaction to them. Yes, yes, they have a different worldview. They have different values. Unless we take those into perspective, we can't really understand how they're going to react. Of all the scenes in the book, what is the most action-packed that you could describe to us? Okay, do you want me to read the scene or just... Well, which, whichever is uh, most comfortable uh, for you. You can certainly read it if you'd like. I found, a, I found a scene. I can read it. And then, I mean, you can tell me whether it's too long or not. Sure, go ahead. The scene takes place during the initial Russian attack. Um, there's an outpost outside of town manned by several of the soldiers, uh, two of whom are named Anne-Marie and Kevin. And the scene begins, before Anne-Marie could respond, the ominous low throbbing, throbbing, punctuated by squeals of metal and metal, filled the air. The noise reverberated around them, muffled, magnified, by the smoke screen, getting louder as though it were moving toward them. As one, they turned to the front of the position and stared at the smoke in horrified anticipation. As she watched, a squat black shape began to grow in the haze. A massive gun tube suddenly broke out of a fog bank, jutting into her vision and swiveling from side to side as though sending out its prey. Slowly, massively, the rest of the tank appeared, growing out of the smoke. Anne-Marie stared in frozen, terrified fascination as it crawled toward them. The turret swiveled to the left and fired at some target known only to the crew. The main gun bucked, belched a bright orange fireball. The blast wave kicked up debris around the position and slapped the three Americans with a physical violence. The gun tube dropped until it pointed directly at Anne-Marie and Kevin. Gunner fired a burst from a coax machine gun at them. The tank was too close to depress the gun enough, and the rounds passed harmlessly over their heads. The driver gunned his engine and swung the tank toward the two Americans. Kevin and Anne Marie screamed in raw terror and threw themselves to the floor of their position. 
her world turned black and the walls of the hole shook as the tank rolled forward and over the trench. The white crack passed over the hole, dropped into it, and seemed to press down at her with a tangible force. She rolled onto her stomach, screaming in terror, and scrabbled to the ground with her fingers. The engine roared as the driver gunned it and pivoted the tank right and left, back and forth over her. The earth crumbled and shook, bringing large clots of dirt down. The roar of the diesel and squeal of the tracks drowned out her screams and sobs. The tank stopped, rested, and began tilting again as though the driver were using his steel tracks to dig down to trap the merring and drive them into the earth. Anne-Marie could not hear her own screams, even locked in her protective mask. The noise of the tank penetrated her whole body. It was a solid pressure on her. She felt wetness in her thighs as her bladder emptied. Suddenly, the noise stopped again as the tank ceased moving. A blast of concussion slapped her as the Russian fired his main gun. A cloud of dust floated down on her and was sucked up again as the tank fired it, as the tank fired again. Each time the gun fired, the tank rocked on its tracks and shook more dirt loose from the walls. The engine roared again and the tracks pivoted as the tank rolled the reverse officer hole and then rolled forward. The front of the tank dipped into the hole aimed directly at her. She felt her bowels empty and sobbed in terror and self-disgust. The tank rolled forward and off the top of the position. As she lay in the bottom, feeling fouled and shame, her fear turned to hatred, her panic to rage. She went only to kill the man who had degraded her. Slowly, she pulled herself erect and looked out of the position. The smoke was starting to fade as she see the tank about 50 meters away. Oh, that's a that's an attention-grabbing scene for sure. Uh, Jim, tell me why your book is a little bit different. Uh, most stories address the European war from the viewpoint of active duty troops already in Germany. My story is about reservists, a subject that's not been covered in stories before, so that's why I think it's an unusual and uh, interesting story. Excellent. Yeah, was there anything that was complicated or, or challenging about writing this novel? Was this your first novel? This is my first novel, and creating locations and weapon systems that were not, that they, they were fiction, but they, were really, they had to be real, realistic enough to carry the story forward. Mm-hmm. You know, the, 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 the town of Altendorf, which most of the action takes place, is total fiction, but I had to create it so that it fit into the geography of Germany and types of cities, the way the cities were built, the way they were laid out. That was very challenging. The same thing with a lot of the weapon systems that I use. They, they're fictional, but they had to fit into the technology of the era. But for example, I couldn't use drones in the story because drones didn't exist in the 1980s. Right. The title of the book is The Weekend Warriors, and our author has been James W. Burke, Jr. James, thank you for joining me today. Where do we get copies of your book? Um, the book is available through uh, barnesandnoble.com and amazon.com, and there's also a Kindle edition in, in order as well at the uh, Universe website. Jim, thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much. Best of luck to you on this book and any future writings. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Parker.
You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book title is Those Challenging Cracks of Secularism in and Beyond. And our author is Oliver O. Wachuku. Thank you, sir, for joining me today, sir. You're a reverend, so I'll call you Reverend Oliver if that's all right. That's all right. Tell me about your book. You have uh, a desire to share some information. What inspired you to write this book? Well, this book, I had wanted to write it for a long time, uh, particularly this kind of book with many footnotes, you know, because I have messages to deliver, messages uh, that I would say, informed my disenchantment with the way we are losing grip with the things that have held people together for centuries. Particularly, Christian education is being challenged by secularist mentality that backs at everything spiritual. Right. More importantly, my encounter with a young man whose grandmother advised his mom not to force any religion on him until he came of age to decide for himself. In fact, it was this advice that gave me the final push to start this work. And I take that kind of advice as a typical of the influence of secularism that lowers bars to accommodate almost everything acceptable, good or bad. But God, with that story, I developed other allied issues, weaving them around scriptural ordinances and Christian teachings to guide my visits on them. Because I believe that the truth of religion, particularly Christian religion, can only be genuinely assessed through inner contact with its substance than through the accidentals people import into religion to bleed it with cynicism and distrust. Therefore, this book is written in part to emphasize the values of Christian obligation to assist others to gain true mastery of their religions, religious faith as a necessary element of life. In that regard, therefore, children cannot be denied fundamental religious condiments when they are young and amenable, and be expected to make the connection at growth. For what was never connected cannot reconnect it. So indifference to fundamental faith formation robs possible beneficiaries the merits of growing in the faith 
and living the faith as we inherited it. You have managed to pen 608 pages, which is a, a, a mammoth undertaking. And, of course, you have mentioned that you have taken years to assemble the contents of your book. One of the chapters that grabbed my attention, Chapter 6, uh, has this comment, Religion as you like it, and spiritual, but not religious. And there is a difference between being religious and spiritual, isn't there? That's what the people tend to do or say when they're trying to run away from the obligation of being connected to other people. Yes. They, they tend to see it as a personal matter. But religion in itself is outgoing. In the same way, spirituality, even though it is left to the individual, but it cannot be unconnected with other people. Because the God we worship is a universal God. This is true. This is true. This book is certainly an ambitious read. Who did you primarily want to get interested in reading your, your work? Definitely, primarily adults, and Christian adults in particular. These people share the same Word of God with me, as well as social engineers who, by the nature of their job, are engaged with social activities that influence other people's lives. And more pointedly, these are the builders, the shepherds, and unfortunately, the destroyers of human society. For the possible acts of young people are the probable lessons of adults. Tell us about the title, Those Challenging Cracks of Secularism. What are you referring to there, and how does it affect our life and our faith? Uh, certainly, it is a challenge. A challenge in the sense that secularism is reducing our faith and our mission to a private domain. It has no place for religion in the public domain. In fact, secularism rejects the transcendent, the idea of God, and it produces a growing deterioration of ethics. Weakening our people's sense of personal and collective sin and increases relativism. Secularism objects to objective truth, believing in the absolute right of the individual and accusing sometimes the church of tampering with individual's freedom on everything originally taken for common social order. Then man becomes the absolute God. He makes of himself. Yet we know for certain that we, this life has a beginning and has an end. And how do we access those ends if we really try to dissociate ourselves from the God who created us and to which we shall all return, knowing for certain that we are not men for this place eternally? You have also addressed, uh, because you are a minister or reverend in the Catholic denomination, You've addressed some of the challenges that have faced that group. How did you address those? What was your commentary? Actually, when I said in and beyond, because within the church itself, there are humans. And no human is in pity of, of his surroundings. In other words, our surroundings, our environments, tend so many times to influence of the things we do in the church. So there are challenges, instead of taking the word of God as given to us, 
and living it out as Christian witnesses to the faith. Many times we are being distracted by the things we see around us. We seem to be controlled by what we hear and see, particularly from the media. And so that's where the crack is being influenced in the church. You have mentioned a topic that is a great title, God's Redemptive Contract. How would you describe that? Certainly, God has a plan for everyone. And each one of us, what is required of us is to cooperate in God's plan for all of us. First, he said in the book of Genesis, as well as in Exodus, I am your God and you are my people, if we take it truly to her. And what does it mean to be people of God? And what does it mean to be related to God? That means God has a mission for us all to be fulfilled. And then when we accept God, as a part of our life, there are things expected of us to achieve and uh, to do. And that's what the thing we do may equally relate to our relationship with our fellow human being. Because we cannot divorce our relationship with others from our relationship with God, or divorce our relationship with God with our relationship with other people. So long as we live our genuine Christian calling, then in the light of God's ordinances for us, certainly we are fulfilling the contract God has calling us to be our brothers and sisters keepers. What do you want readers to take away or learn from this book that you have produced? What is the message you want to really underscore to them? Well, the message, uh, there are many, many of them, nevertheless. While it may be that there are too many things to be taken from this, is to let people understand, as a people, that we are losing a grip of our religious values. We are losing it. In fact, the greatest challenge to the future of our modern world is the influence of secularism that makes us live no longer as neighbors, but as tools in the hands of every passing novelty, real or imaginary, to be manipulated and discarded at will. So unless we convert ourselves to our true relationship with God, understanding the dignity of the human person that God created us, we will be living in tension among ourselves. How would you introduce this book to a friend and tell them about its content? Well, as again, as I mentioned before, introducing this book to a friend, I will tell a friend, you see, we are losing a battle that would never have been started if we had paid close attention to what has bequeathed us this hopeful and um, peaceful society we enjoy now. And secularism is one of those. Is a decimating the things that have held us together for ages, and that we no longer live as neighbors, but as enemies, strangers to one another. And what would you think is the the key in the book, those challenging cracks of secularism? What is the key there that makes it unique or different from other books in the marketplace dealing with the temptation to fall away from our faith? Well, certainly, if we say there are many other books in the market, but you know as much as I do, 
that experiences differ. Experience differ. And then my experience differ from other people's experience. So the issues and issues relate to people differently. My background, my experience, my perspective, and my unique identity. Though some of them cross paths with other people, others in their own way. Nevertheless, the issues of this book are universal, of universal interest, but they are guided by my own experience, background, that cannot be replicated. So I have allowed myself not only to be swayed by controlled opinion books, as we often say, that make people hesitate to challenge strange ideas and issues that weigh on their naturally private values. For even if some others have talked about what I have written, they have not represented my own unique experience. It is these experiences, convictions, social outlooks, my beliefs, and background that make my book different from others in the market. Are there any specific words or ideas or thoughts that would underscore or describe your book? Well, if those words, as I mentioned, secularism is one of them. And then lukewarmness. Well, people are very lukewarm of what they are expected to do as Christians, as to guide their dependents, the young ones. But then another way is determination. When the young ones eventually find that we're being led astray, and they are determined to find the right path, certainly then that's where the issue of determination. So secularism, lukewarmness, and determination are the key words I would suggest. You have 608 pages. A couple of questions. How long did it take to complete the book, and what was the most challenging part of writing this long and interesting tale of church secularism? Uh, Certainly, it is a long book, a very voluminous book, in the sense that it took me almost eight years to complete it. You write, you edit, you re-edit, you incorporate, and you delete But the most challenging is how best to present the truth condensed in this book so as to challenge my readers with the move to liberate ourselves from ideas and desires that distract and divide us. Ideas sometimes that distort the truth of our faith. And the most rewarding of it will be the peace, the return to the justice and the love of God the relationship that peoples everywhere will enjoy through conversion to our hearts, to the inspired Word of God. But instead of the tension that is everywhere destroying people's togetherness as people created in the image and likeness of God. Uh, Reverend Oliver, how do, we, how do we combat secularism with it being so prevalent in the press and, and in the writing and in the news? Well, you know, Jay, with our modern technology, many times people are glued to watching the television, listening to the radio, or the internet. And so these things have a strong influence on us. So if, if we can soft pedal the non-inspirational stereotype of journalism on media coverage that desensitize people of religion, we will be at a better stand. People obsessed by secularism have agenda that blinded them of the truth of religion. 
They blend those secular obsessions with stories told at the expense of spirituality, objectivity, and the transcendence. And so the lack of peace in our world today will continue to challenge our human sense of accomplishment if religion, an intrinsic element of being human, is not truly recognized and provided for. For however far advanced humanity has gone, technologically wise, challenges to those advances will continue to create tension if justice, love, and concern for others are not factored in as necessary elements good for all people alike. Reverend Oliver, who is the source of peace? As a matter of fact, all of you, you and me, and everyone, we are, we are the instruments. God has made everything good for us all, but the way we handle them, we create peace or discord among people. Reverend Oliver, thank you for, for sharing your background story about this great book, Those Challenging Cracks of Secularism in and Beyond. Our author, Oliver O. Wachuku. Thank you, sir, thank for being with us today. Where, do, where can we get copies of your book? Well, certainly, you can go to iUniverse.com or BarnesandNobles.com as well as uh, um, Amazon.com. As a matter of fact, they're developing a website for me, challengingcracks.com. Excellent. We'll have, uh, I'm sure our listeners will want to keep in contact with you and find out about other books or other writings that you may undertake. Thank you for joining me today and sharing your story. Thank you very much, Jay. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.